G'day, g'day. Welcome back to the Talk Hub Podcast. Get ready for the ride. Here we go. My name's Briley. My name's Jake. My name's Penny. And this is our father, Brendan Hinkson's podcast called the Talk Hard Podcast. Yes, it is. It's not rocket science. Read the title. Oh, thanks for that, Jake. We've got some great people lined up for you guys. And we hope you enjoy. Our father will be blabbling a lot of shite. So if you do enjoy, leave a review. Like and subscribe. Grab your miso and enjoy the show. Thank you and enjoy. This episode of the Talk Hard Podcast is brought to you by Trailer Skips Tasmania and Full Bore Skip Bins. If you're doing a bit of work around the house and you've got large amounts of waste items from household waste, green waste, building or renovation waste or heavy waste items and your piles are becoming bigger than Ben-Hur, Give Dylan a call to organise your trailer skip or full bore skip bin today. Trailer skips use a unique design incorporating a skip bin built into a trailer for easy removal and tipping. Or if it's a normal skip bin you need, a full bore skip bin will be the one for you. You don't even have to pick it up or dump it yourself. Dylan will deliver it for you and he'll take it away and dump it. How good's that? Give him a call today on 0409 801 635. Trailer skips and full bore skip bins. Don't go the half job, go the full bore. On this week's show, one of the nicest people on the planet and someone at the absolute top of her game, Mel Purcell. Most people in this area will know Mel for the fantastic work she does in counselling and the social work field, but many might not know her story and why she's actually chosen to get into this profession. Mel talks about her upbringing, including a family strong influence on her life, being a victim of bullying in high school, which ultimately led to her life's purpose, the uncanny story about how dialing a wrong number led to her meeting the love of her life, her work in general, including helping people at their absolute lowest, what some of the major highs and lows of her industry are, difficult stories she's encountered, and she gives some great insights into issues with society today as she's one of the people that sees these things on the front line. We speak about hypnotism. Mel assures me that she can hypnotise anyone, which is a challenge I'm going to take up with her. She also takes time to give some great advice on how to take care of yourself during the Christmas period. Just a warning, you'll need to turn up the volume on this one. She's such a legend, Mel, and she was unwell on the day of our chat. Her voice was failing her a bit, but she was determined to do it as a favour to me. What an absolute champion she is. And more importantly, she's an A1 human being. Hope you enjoy. Very special treat on the show today. Um, I've wanted to get this lady on for quite some time, but I refer to her as the LeBron James of mental health and well-being. So obviously she's really hard to get hold of, but her reputation does precede her. I know just from working a little bit um, in this industry, like certainly not to the extent that this lady has, but just a little bit on the periphery, like she's she spoken in very high regard. So it doesn't surprise me that it was um, a bit tricky to get hold of her. I'd like to welcome Mel Purcell, finally, to the Talk Hard podcast. Thank you. That is one incredible introduction. <laughs> I need to just keep playing that to myself before I go to the day, you know, pump myself up. Just to pump your ego yeah. up. <laughs> so I know that you're a little bit under the weather. Um, yes, I am. I apologise. I have a sinus infection. I yeah. Think. You're such a trooper, though, because obviously yeah. we, we could have cancelled this, but, um, you know, I know how much you value other people's time, and I certainly value value your time. So, you know, I love the fact that you're still prepared to push yes. through. So if Mel sounds a little bit croaky, yes. you'll have to bear with us. Yes. But I haven't been some in jazz. <laughs> Not yet, anyway. Not yet, no. I won't do that to you. Yeah. 
most people that um, that listen to the podcast will, will know the format that we use. So we, we normally just go back to the, the start for you. So um, obviously I know a little bit about your history, you know, because we sort of grew up together in, in La Trobe. We haven't sort of seen each other for, for quite a while, but um, I'll let you tell it. So, yeah, you started off, you're born in... Born in La Trobe. Yep. La Trobe Hospital. No, Devonport Hospital. Yep. Wasn't La Trobe. As most of us yeah, were, yeah. Yeah, La Trobe family, <laughs> mum and dad, very yep. lucky. Um, middle of two sisters, older and younger sister. Yep, same as me, you're the yeah, rebel, the middle that's child. That's exactly right, the outspoken one. <laughs> um, Latrobe Primary, Latrobe High, then Taz Unis, and then Monash and Deacon Unis. So. Pretty well versed in, in the schooling yeah, side of things. Yeah, yeah, got a bit distracted. I like to learn. Yep. Yeah. Tell me what it was like growing up in Latrobe. So, Latrobe is um, a beautiful spot, really, to grow up. It's You've got, you know, some really secure families. That was a you know, things I would never let my children do these days, go tiddling without supervision, play by water, rivers, yep. out all day till dark. You know, yep. it was lovely. Do you think the yeah. world's changed a little bit? Because I quite often oh, think about the, the way that we grew up back mm. then. You know, we probably used to bump into each other on our bikes and yes. you know, you'd be forever yeah. just, yeah. you'd go at breakfast and you yeah. wouldn't get back till tea yeah. time. Yeah. You'd be yeah. riding around, no helmets and no sunscreen. Yes, I and... Yeah, I know. <laughs> and we were fine. Yeah, no, I'd never, yeah, it's completely different. Never let my children do that. Yeah. Mm. Do you think nowadays, though, people are more aware of what can happen to their kids back then because of, you know, obviously media now is so big and, and, and people find out about what's going on back then. Do you think our parents just were naive or they're just I you know beautifully innocent beautiful innocence yeah but i also think as a flip side which we'll probably get more into i think there's a downside that there's a lack of um distress tolerance as a result which you know leads into a lot of mental health issues explain that to me i haven't heard of that before this is my theory it's yep. not a real theory so yep. i think that you know when you were a kid and you'd watch radio you'd have to play a song and it would be on a tape most people know what a tape was yep. and you have to pause it or rewind it or there'd be ads there's free to air tv you'd have to wait for the ad you know Things you'd have to wait. You'd have to develop patience for it. You don't do that now. Everything's Spotify, instant instant gratification the whole way. So our children don't learn that distress tolerance. Yep. So I think that really plays into a lot of mental health issues because they haven't learned that resilience and that behaviour that we have. Yep. So I think that's a problem. Do you think that also plays into like people's employment as well? Because yes. people want to be the CEO straight yes. away. Yes. They can't sweep yes. the floors and push yes. trolleys and things yes. like that and work their way up. They yep. want it now. Yep. And it's what will you do for them? As opposed to a paycheck, you know, the paycheck's not enough anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it's really tricky to hire staff at the moment. Yeah, it's a different world, mm, isn't very it? Very different. So yeah. what about family? You touched on it there before, so I know that your family was a big influence on yes. you growing up. Yes, yeah, so I was really, really lucky. My dad gave me this incredible sense of that I could do anything, so I do. Um, the black sheep that just goes and does whatever she wants, and that's, God, oh, there she goes again, it's lovely. And smashes it. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, so it's very different. I was the one that, I mean, I'm the first one in my family to go to university, so I just, just whatever I wanted to do, I just did. It was lovely. There was no glass ceiling for me. Didn't yep. matter what gender, didn't matter anything. It was just lovely. My mum, if anyone knows, my mum, she's been through an awful lot of health issues recently for the, probably the last few years. Should have died multiple times. Still kicking. Yep. Going to make another comeback. So she's installed in me this huge sense of, yeah, obviously, you just get up when you're sick and you keep going. Yeah takes a lot to keep us down so that's a really good life skill to have some yeah. people crumble very easily which is yep. fine everyone's plate's different but i have a very strong pain threshold and tolerance for things as so. shown today that's again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah just just to fill people in mel was actually at hospital this morning yes. at 4 a.m yeah. i don't know whether you've had a rest or a sleep no at no all. i haven't had a shower god yeah you're a yeah. beast yeah no so you you went to you went to primary school at latrobe primary yeah. yep yep so how did uh, schooling go for you latrobe primary was 
I don't really remember much about it. Was okay. The tribe high yep. was not a very favourable time. Yep. Um, I know a lot of people talk about bullying now, and it's a very normal thing. I don't think twenty years ago, maybe it was a normal thing. I'm not sure, but I experienced a lot of bullying in grade eight, and yep. it was really shaped me as a person. Yep. So I recall, I don't know how I fell into a friendship group that kind of um, probably circled between ostracizing people and that was a very normal teenage thing but when it came to my turn I didn't kind of stand for it very well yep so I was I mean back then there was no social media so I wasn't luckily I could leave the bullying at school I didn't go home and it wasn't 24 7 but at school I was ostracized was, so, so did you find that your friends wanted you to bully other people um, I th- you no I think as a group there would be one on the outer constantly ah, and when okay. it was my turn I didn't play by the rules. Yep. So I kind of it got extended and, and then it became a real thing. It wasn't just a game or whatever the... I don't really understand the theory because I'm not that type of person, but whatever the philosophy behind it was didn't work. So yep. So you say uh, you didn't play by the rules. Did you fight back? Or did yeah. You, okay. Yeah. Good on you. Yeah, it didn't work very well. <laughs> so yeah. I was, yeah, ostracised. There was lots of hand gestures, rumours, names. I, I remember, you know, spending lunch times on my own. It was really, as a teenager, you never want to be ostracised or isolated. It was horrifying. Mm. Float between groups, not really feeling connected. Huge amount of angst. If I was, didn't have the upbringing I had, I would have fallen easily into depression and anxiety. If we had the social media we have now, I would have probably been suicidal because it was so intense and so consuming. Yeah. And then luckily for me, there was a group of really incredible people and three of them, Luke, Tom and Sal, stood behind me and just kind of took me under their wing and they're still significant people in my life. And, they, and they're and a huge group of guys. Guys are so lovely to get along with. There's you know, only a couple of girls, but they're just so They're very simple. They're just so <laughs> kind. Like, even to the point, one of the guys that I haven't spoken to in 20 years put on Facebook the other day, I was having trouble with a printer. He wins me up and fixes it from me. He's in Queensland. Like, the, you guys are just so nice anyway. So they got me through it and they were the kindest, nicest humans. Like, without them, I wouldn't be here. They were just yep. so good. Yeah, okay. But it really shaped who I was because up until then, I wanted to be a vet. Yeah. Loved animals. And then after that, when you've been treated so cruelly and you kind of don't understand why humans can do that, I thought I'm never going to do that to someone else. Yeah. Did you have times where you didn't want to go to school? And, yeah. Yep. But you I'm, still went, did you? Yeah, it wasn't optional in my house. <laughs> yep, yep. So I remember Dad actually went and knocked on a few of the parents' doors, which was a really big move wow. for him. Wow, bit of old school justice. Yeah, I know, and <laughs> didn't get anywhere. Yeah. And that would have been really hard because he's a very proud man. He's so non-conflictual. But he was just like, this is breaking my daughter and this is not okay. Yeah, so no, it was a very strange time. Yep. I mean, I'm fortunate though because I found my people really early on. Like I've got, still got those friends, and after that, I found some more secure friends that I've still had. I've had the, had the same friends for like 25 years. They're incredible people in my yeah. life. You gotta hang on to the good ones. Yeah, and I've had good ones ever since. But it's, and I think as a professional, when I go through and I work with people now, if I get a teenager, I feel this huge protective sense for them, and I really like working with them because I can understand. And teenagers see straight through you when you work with them, so they're lucky or they don't. But I really resonate with them, and I feel like. I don't know, it just brings back all that angst you have and it's just something that I like to work with. Yeah, mm. and it, it, for the, these days for teenagers, you know, in my opinion, I think it's it's increased tenfold. You touched on it there uh, before because of social media. It's like, awful. 
I know back in the day, if if you were being bullied or if you if you had an issue with someone, it was between you know nine a.m. and two thirty yes. p.m. And it was now, you and them. It wasn't a whole group where people joined in and liked and shared it. And yeah, yeah, it's out of control. Mm. Now you can be sitting at home at eleven o'clock at night and you're being yep. bullied or being excluded. Yeah. So yeah, there's just no let up for it. No, it's disgusting. Yeah, and and obviously we'll talk about that a little mm. bit more because I'm sure you see that quite a bit. Yeah. But, so from high school, what where did you go to after that? Did you go so, to Don College? Yeah, or? I went to Don College. Yep. Didn't really enjoy that either. Still had some friends, met some more friends, but just really didn't find, um, just, yeah, wasn't really my thing. Then I went to university, moved to Hobart. My parents were beautiful. They paid for me to move into an apartment, like one of those on-campus apartments. Yep. <clears throat> I happened to have a relationship down here, so I lasted a night. Yep. I'd quit my job and everything. And left the place, said, no, it's not for me. Okay. And came back and did it by distance. Yep. Got my job back, which was really good. So why wasn't it for you? What, what was it about? I it? think it was too overwhelming. Dad cried when he dropped me off. That broke my heart. I never yep. seen him cry before. I was like, no, that's not okay. Yep. Nice to feel wanted. <laughs> yeah, but it was, it was just awful. And I think the whole thing was just this, like very American thing where everyone was partying. And I have this, I had this really secure group of friends, which shouldn't be a problem but I didn't need any more yeah and everyone was looking for themselves and I really found myself like I'd been through such an intense shaping time that I'd kind of was a bit ahead of where they were at yeah so it just wasn't for me so I did it by distance and I worked full-time which was lovely because I worked at Wells and Sons which is a supermarket yeah and I met some incredible ladies or girls and the customers were incredible and they're still my best friends like godparents to my children like they're just my soul sisters yeah so, yeah, so I just got more and more out of it. Yep, mm. yep. One of the things which is interesting about our, our correspondence when I was talking to you, you self-published a poetry uh, book. Yeah. Was that around that sort of time? Yeah, was so it? this is getting really off track. So what This happened? is cool, though. This is why yeah. I asked the question. Well, it's going to go into all different... You're going to have to That's all right. Back. We've got plenty of time. So we'll make this a two-parter was... if we need to. <laughs> what happened was, um, not many people know this stuff, that I must have been about 19, and one of my friends, Tom, was diving with a bunch of our gorgeous friends at Port Sorrel and dived off the jetty and broke his spine and yep. became a quadriplegic. Yeah. And that completely gutted me. Like, there was a bunch of stuff that went on at that time. I'd been writing poetry for years because I, I was full of angst. I was really unsettled. Didn't feel like I had a home. Really didn't feel like I belonged. It was a great way to calm my inner chaos. So when Tom had the accident, I... I just wasn't myself. I remember his dad, Warren, came to the supermarket one day and he said to me, hey, how are you going? And I was like, I'm really overwhelmed. And he was like, oh, that's a really strange word. And I was like, oh, it probably is. I was at uni, but I was only like first or second year, so I wasn't really far into my social work. I went to the doctor and I'm telling the doctor that I'm crying all the time, I'm not sleeping, I'm really overwhelmed, I'm really angry, which now I know is my go-to when I get stressed or depressed or think I get really angry. And I got diagnosed with clinical depression or situational depression. So, And I was gutted. I cried at the doctor and I was like, this is not me. I'm really optimistic. I'm really resilient. I don't get depressed. And he said, well, it's a result of everything you've been through. Like, So back then, it was like 20 years ago, we didn't have counselling so much as we do now. So it wasn't the best treatment offered. But anyway, I got through it after six months or so. But Tom was in Melbourne for months with rehab and this and that. And I wanted to do something for him. So I self-published a poetry book. And the proceeds of the book launch went towards his housing and wow. so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. So you managed to raise a fair bit of money for oh, him? Oh, I can't remember. It was an, and it didn't build his house, but yep. it, was, it went towards it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sure yeah. we appreciate every little bit yeah, helps, doesn't so. it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So do you still write poetry? So not so much because two reasons. When I went to London, I felt like I found my inner, my 
sense of belonging. I felt like I was home, didn't want to leave. And when I met Dan, he's just calm and quiet. Like, um, he's just no more inner chaos. My husband's like, yep. I don't need to anymore. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting because my wife yeah. and I, we have some of the biggest rows ever and that's quite therapeutic <laughs> for us. Like, we can yell and scream at each other, but the yeah. kids know once we get that out yeah, of our yeah, system, yeah. it's all done. It's You've gone. got to do it, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, good, strong relationships. Yeah, yeah. so we're sort of the yin to yang yeah. with each other as well, but yeah. sometimes it gets quite... Uh, volatile I suppose not in a physical way but yeah we get very very aggro but then once we get it out of our system it's very healthy yeah Mm. so around that um around that time you entered um social work was that around 2000 yeah 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 yeah. so I was fortunate enough to do my first placement got a job out of that in a community development project in circular heading family violence yeah and out of that I got to develop a intimate relationship program here in Devonport that's still running for Anglicare, so that was really cool. Awesome. Yeah. Yep. So that obviously fueled the fire for, for what you're doing now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I've been really lucky. I've done lots of different areas in social work because in social work you can change regularly and it's viewed as really okay because you don't want to burn out. So you yep. get to try lots of different areas. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And you talk about burnout. It's obviously a it's obviously a job where you you take on a lot of a lot of yeah. um, other people's issues and things like that. So you hear a lot of stories. What what sort of self care things do do you yeah. do for yourself to, to de stress? So it's really hard to explain how you look after yourself because you, my way wouldn't be the same way for everyone. So sometimes it's just catching up with friends and forgetting things exist. Other times it might be going. You know, I used to love to travel. We can't do that so much anymore at mm. the moment, so that hurts. But yeah, travel's a big thing. Being with family, just whatever makes you tune off. I've got this really great ability. And not Like, you do care about your clients. You think about them. You plan for them. You worry about them. But there's only a couple that truly get under your skin and you can't let go of it in a, you know, not such a good way. Yeah, so yep. I'm pretty lucky like that. Yeah. Are you, are you allowed to sort of elaborate on what sort of stories do generally get under you? Yeah. I don't expect you to tell the stories, but what sort of general um, situations are the ones that yep. do stick with you? So that's always the teenage girls that get under my skin, and I think I must see a piece of them in me, or I want their life to be better than what they had. Yeah. Which I think as a mother is what you want for your own children anyway. You want more than what you had. Mm. And they have, usually there's some kind of trauma and there's something that we've done in society to let them down. And if we can undo that or change it, then we can make the whole world different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, through your university, you've, you've got a number of degrees and qualifications yeah. through that. Is it something that's sort of ongoing development for you? Do you still sort of yeah. do study and things too? I signed up to my PhD a few years ago and Dan had to say, you actually don't have time. And I got really angry like you. And I was like, oh. and then I was like, oh, crap, he's right. Yep. And the children were really little. And I was like, I really can't do that. But I just love to learn. It's something that I just love to learn. Like I recently just completed my eating disorder training to be credentialed nationally. Yep. Love it. Really hard area to work in. But I just constantly want to learn. I just can't get enough of it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think that's part of the human nature, isn't it? Yeah. First for knowledge and helps you yeah. grow, doesn't it? The more yeah. information you can take in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you spoke about Dan and the family. So when did you when did you meet Dan? <laughs> okay. So back when everyone was meeting people in pubs, I, I never wanted to get married or have children. Yep. It was not in my life plan. I was going to always be single and travel the world. One of my beautiful friends was diagnosed with cancer when I was in Europe and she had like three or four months to live. And I said to her, what do you want to do? And she said, I want you to plan our wedding. So some friends and I planned a wedding and then she died shortly after, so it was terrible. But while she was still alive, she said to me, I want you to get, my lad's sorry, I want you to get crap together. I'll say crap. You say whatever you like. (laughs) She said, I want you to get crap together. I want you to get a secure relationship. Do this. And I was like, no, I don't really want to do that. 
she had children. She said it was a great idea. <laughs> I was like, okay, I don't know about that. Anyway, so I said to her, all right, I'll have a think about it, you know, have a consider it. So I think she did this to me. That's why I mentioned it in her. So I have been made redundant three times in my life. So private practice is way more secure than employment. Yep. But on the second time I was in a pub, may have had a few drinks and I was a manager at the time. So I was reading contacts in my phone saying, please don't contact me anymore. I've been made redundant. You know, this number's not going to work, blah, blah, blah. And, um, I ran this number and it happened to not be the number of the person anymore. It had been reallocated a few times. I don't know how many times or whatever. Dan rings back. Didn't know. He's like, who is this? You've left this big number. I don't have this big message. I don't know who you are. I'm like, who are you? He sounded like a New Zealander. He'd been working with New Zealanders because mm. he was a linesman in, I don't know where he was at the time. And it turned out he was going to be in Hobart. He was flying into Hobart the next weekend and I was going to be down there because Jace, my best friend, lives down there. And we caught up and that was it. Yep. Yeah. So I dialed the wrong number and met Dan. As fate would have it. Fate would have it. And it was his <laughs> idea to have children. I kept buying him animals. Yeah. For ages, trying to buy him off with puppies and rabbits and things. And eventually we had children. Best thing I've ever done. But So I'm curious, yeah. how does a conversation from, sorry, I think you've got the wrong number, turn into, why don't we I catch know. up for a drink? Well, that's the thing. Because you, when you've had a few drinks and you're a bit cocky and you're like, <laughs> you know. And I think Shaz was up there in heaven going, girl, get your crap together. Like, you know. And when I met him, I was went back to Jace's house and Jace was like, oh, he was all dramatic. And he's like, I've lost you. I've lost my best friend. This is it. <laughs> and I was like, don't be so ridiculous, Jace. Like this guy, I've met him for like, you know, you know, met him that night. Don't know if I'll see him again. Just calm your farm. Six weeks later, we were engaged. Wow. Yeah, like that was it. Yeah. I was like, bloody hell, Jason Shaz, they just knew what they were talking about. Yeah. I had no idea myself. So, yeah. yeah. So, obviously, when you know, you know. Yeah. You're good at making a decision. Yeah, apparently. So, like you said, you kept buying him pets, but that didn't last. No, so, obviously, no. two two beautiful children yes, came along. Yes, two beautiful girls. Yep. Yeah. So, what year were they born? 2009 was London. Yep. And 2010 was Avara. Yep. Yeah. Now, they're really cool names. I've always been yeah. interested in this. Now, I'm assuming the London one probably speaks for itself, does it? Or No. So, people are really confused. They think she was conceived in London. No. Okay. Nothing to do with London. When yep. I went to London, all my inner calm came and I felt like I'd gone home. It was like, I felt like I belonged. Like, I just, all my angst was gone. It was the most amazing experience of my life. And I wanted my firstborn to have that sense of belonging from word go to always feel like she belonged and had this inner calm. She doesn't, but maybe one day she'll get there. Yep, so she's not calm. She's then. far from it. Right. No. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I know she missed the boat, but we tried. <laughs> and Avara, Dan picked the name, and we just kept saying, she needs to have this really beautiful name. She needs to have a name that's as beautiful as she's going to be, and she's got these incredible eyelashes, so yep. she'll grow into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, no, like I say, they're, they're really cool names, and it's interesting that you say that um, one, one of them, um, London, sort of quite... I was going to ask you, what what sort of mum are you? Are you a counsellor at home, are you? Or are you this different is, yeah. than you are with clients? Or um, So, not so much a counsellor because they don't take it on board. Because <laughs> your mum. Yeah, that's are. right. Yeah, exactly. But we do. We're, we're a really awkward family that we talk about body parts really openly. So we use the correct language. We talk about feelings. You know, they're very like, they've been described as very worldly and very they're very emotionally aware, very intuitive. London really should go into psychology. She can pick people like instantly. She just, it's like, oh, I think they're a bit, you know, narcissistic. And I'm like, calm down, you're 12, you know? Yep. So, not counseling, very attached parents are very, um, yeah, like, I swear Avara was like a little koala bear and attached to me for like four years. She just didn't get off my back. But, yep. yeah, so no, I would, yeah, very, I don't know, they're probably calm, hopefully, but not as 
therapized as they could be. <laughs> could do better. Yeah. But no, they won't take it from me. Yeah. Do you which find, frustrates me. Do you find it, it's it's different at, at home? I remember because I did a little bit of work in, in youth work. Yeah. And I think I had a, a little bit of success sort of working with young people. But then I found when I was home, like the advice that you'd be giving your own kids or even like my wife used to say to me, um, how are you such a good listener at work because you're yeah. a terrible listener at yeah. home? Do you find that that's a little bit different for yeah. you or are you the same no. when you're at home? Or I get a bit talked, not talked out, but a bit listened to out at home, a bit tired. Yeah. And they just don't want to hear it. Like if I even do a little bit of like, you know, if they even think it's a little bit of commercial CBT or something, they're like, hold on a minute. I see straight through. What are you doing there? <laughs> don't like, play oh, those no, tricks No, that's right. Like, All right, here we go again. Yeah, cool. Um, so eventually you, you obviously started your own business. Mm. So what led to that? Tell us about the journey leading up to that. So when London was born, I started doing supervision and um, just really training stuff for organisations. Yep. And I was doing it from home. So I started Lomvara, but I started it in a place where I was really happy for people coming to the house. And then I was fortunate enough to do the hypnotherapy training, which is amazing, changed my professional life. And I was happy for those clients to come to the house. So I was only doing it part-time. And then I was made redundant for the third time. Yeah. And I figured, okay, I'm going to take this pleasure. I'm going to put more energy into this, but I don't want to put mental health clients in the house. Yeah. And I have the best clients. Like, the universe is so kind to me. Yeah. But I didn't, you know, there's, mental health can be a bit dicey. You don't yeah. quite know. So then I started renting a room, and I rented it at Jager, and the girls are amazing. They are crackers of ladies. Yeah. And they were the best supportive, so they were really lovely to just get my, you know, get used to it. Yep. And then, it must have been, what have I been doing? 12 years, and so now I've moved into a, a bigger commercial space, so I could do more work, and it's just, it's gone crazy. Awesome. Yeah. Shout out to the ladies at Jager, they'll they be listening. They are so beautiful, yeah. I love them to death. They're they good are just value. gorgeous. Um, so, um, who are your main clientele then that you're working with? That's an excellent question. So, main clientele, to do successful in my industry, I found that I needed a lot of... Uh, Avenue revenues so I've got to start with I had EAPs for other places which is employee assistance program and then I had open arms which is veterans counseling service and then I had GP mentors care plans which is private clients and you have people that aren't GP so self-funded yep and then I did a little bit of work for the unis and then I do stuff for organizations and I'm contracted through Aboriginal services so there was lots of different stuff yeah and now I've kind of fine-tuned that. Instead of other people's ARP, I've actually taken on my own contracts directly. So I have contractors to work for me to help me do those contracts. So it's kind of cool. like a passive income. Yeah, so it's yep. grown a bit. But GP clients would probably be the main source of income. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And so that's just sort of around like mental health issues? Yeah. Or, yep. Yeah. So predominantly anxiety, depression, yep. lower level kind of severity stuff. If it's anything too severe, that'd go to public mental health or something like that. Yeah. Again, we, we talk about society changing. I know back in the day, obviously, people weren't so good at, at talking about their feelings and things yeah. like that. Do you think that mental health and anxiety and depression was as prevalent back in the day, but they just weren't aware of it, but yep. now there's more awareness around it? Yep. It just seems like now, and, and, and this is actually a really cool thing, that everybody has their own issues, yeah. which we're all human. Yeah. Um, but back then, you didn't. Or yeah. if you had some sort of issues, you were seen as... You yeah, know, a bit weird. Yeah, yeah. Do you think, think it's different? There's a few things. I think they used to call it nerve problems a lot, which annoys me because my mum still says that. I'm like, it's not nerve problems. That's you know undiagnosed yeah. stuff. I then I went to uni, mum. Don't argue with me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I think there is some you know misdiagnosed stuff. Yeah. Um, so I have a lot of people that would be over seventy and eighty coming to me to get their life sorted. And that yeah. makes me a bit sad because I wish I had done that a bit earlier. 
It's good they're still doing it, but you know, you shouldn't wait till you're 80. But that's a reflection of society, like you said. I think that it's really open that everyone's supported. They can do it now, which is fantastic. But I also think on the flip side, because I'm all about everything, everyone should access it. It's like servicing your car. You should just go for the sake of it. But I think words like depression, anxiety are overused. I think people say, I'm so depressed, I'm so anxious, when they're mm. not clinically that way. Sometimes words get a bit sort of sexy and buzzwords, exactly. don't they? Like yeah. it's, it's cool to say yeah, that, exactly. which is very dangerous. Yeah. yeah, yeah, or even suicidal. So it kind of takes us thin out of it. So. Do you yeah. do you speak to people who are suicidal or who are yeah. sort of on the verge of that? How, how does that conversation generally go with someone? I know sometimes it's just having the courage to ask them, but... Yeah. How does, how does that generally go for you? So I'm really confident with that. So I just ask them straight out, are you having suicidal thoughts? Do you have a plan? Do you have access to what you would like to do? Do you have a date and time? You know, How far along are you with it? What's stopping you from doing it? Just ask all the questions, really hard questions. Yep. I'm really comfortable with that. And then we talk about a plan for them not to do that. Yep. Yeah. And do you usually find, though, that asking those questions and getting them to, to talk about it, I reckon some people, their fear with asking that would be, oh, my God, I'm going to speed up the process or encourage yeah. them to do it. Do you find that it's the opposite? Yeah. I think there's usually a huge sense of relief when people can talk about it. Yeah. Because it takes the fear out of it. Yeah. But I don't expect the average person to ask that question. I think if they have any concerns, get a professional to do it. Yeah. That was one thing I was going to ask you if somebody's dealing with someone that they think. Yeah, no. Yeah. I say to people, like, if you're the family, you're the friend, you keep being that person, leave that mental health role to me or someone else. So you can pick up, you know, do the grocery run with them or do the let's watch whatever TV show together, be that support role, leave the mental health stuff to us, leave the tricky conversations to us. Yeah. So then if we have to do the hard conversations, we can be the bully or the, not the bully, but the person they're not comfortable with, that they're not happy with around that stuff. Yeah. Are you prepared to sort of talk about, not certain cases individually, but what's been one of the hardest cases that you've you've worked with, one that, I don't know whether you've, you've had someone that's passed away after you're working with them or has there been one that has gone downhill after you've worked with them? What, what's been one of the hardest ones? So the, um, I haven't had anyone die in touch with because yep. that's really quite common. Yep. I don't know how I'd feel about that. Yeah. The hardest ones would be the ones that get under your skin probably. that You know, there's one that I was driving to the lakes with there and I was worrying about this person. I was like, that's not right. And that was a person that was going through severe trauma and the parents were allowing it to happen. It was happening within a family situation. And they were allowing that to happen. They were aware of it. They were condoning it by not intervening. And it was so tricky because it just could have been so different. And so luckily that had a, um, well, not a great outcome, but an outcome that was suitable for that person. Yep. Other tricky ones are when you don't get to know the outcome. So okay. you work so hard and then it just dies for whatever reason. So they, they just stop coming yeah. back and yeah. gets too hard or they don't like what they're hearing or family violence is really common for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's yep. a really hard area to work in. Yeah. I found, um, again, just the, the brief time that I was working with young people too, one of the things that I struggled with was when they'd, they'd come to you and they'd open up and they'd talk and you could see that, you know, they were really engaging and they were really valuing, you know, the fact that someone was listening to them, but then you had to go and send them back yeah, to that environment yeah, again. Do you struggle with that a little bit? Yeah, young people I do. Yeah. Adults, not so much, because I feel like you've equipped them with some education and some choices. But young people, I feel like that's out of their control and that's not fair. Mm. 
What about some um, some good stories? What are some um, some, some that come to good mind? Stories. That, some ones that yeah you've had a great response with. There's lots of good stories. Yep. I have clients that text me and say like you know they've achieved this incredible outcome and they're so grateful for the intervention. And really, you've just walked well alongside them. You know what it's like with the journey. You don't actually do it. You just give them suggestions. They put the work in. You're so proud of them for doing it. Yeah. So nice that they let you know. So you get a lot of good stories. Yep. Yeah. I read an interesting quote when I was working in it because when I first started working in there, again, this, this came with time, but initially I thought that I did have to give them the solutions and yeah. I felt like I was failing if I wasn't giving them the solutions. But then I read, I think it was like a rapper or someone that had come and spoken to some kids and he said that, our role as as counsellors or social workers or, or whatever I was at the time, it's not your role to actually um, light the fire, but you yeah. might be able to give them the tools to yeah. light the fire yeah. with. Yeah, that's that what's makes... sustainable. In your work, I've read that you also do hypnotism. Yes. Now, I'm very sceptical about hypnotism. Um, I don't reckon I would be the sort of person who could be hypnotised, but can you hypnotise anyone? Anyone. Really? Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to do this one day. <laughs> But oh, love I, on air. No, kidding. That'll be that'll be cool. But I um just explain it to me because yeah. I just think nobody's gonna make my brain do yeah, something yeah. that Everyone it comes in thinking doesn't want yeah. to do. Okay. So it is my favourite thing to do. Yeah. It is the gentlest, easiest intervention you're ever gonna have. Yep. Do you like you do, rock a watch in front of their no, eyes? Nothing, or, no, nothing. No, just like talk that. at you and you do nothing at all and it changes the way you subconsciously view the world, so it changes the way you do things. It wow. is so easy. I've done it from everything from selective mutism to snoring to nail biting to weight loss to quit smoking to stop touching your face anything you can think of irritable bowel I can't the list is endless so you can stop it all with hypnotism absolutely and wow. the only criteria is don't come under the influence and don't come drunk or yep yep um, want to do it so consciously and you know agree to do it and that's it yep yep that's all I require. So explain the principles of hypnotism then. Are you weaving a spell on them or what, no, what do you, so, how does it work? So what you do is you, you get them into a trance state, which is exactly the same. Then like, have you ever driven somewhere and not really paid attention to how you got oh, there? Yeah, all the time. That's a trance state. But this is a clinically induced trance state. Yep. And then I give your subconscious mind a bunch of suggestions and then I bring you back out. Yep. That's it. Yep. Simple as that. But it's done in a story version because our subconscious mind works in stories. Yeah. Yeah. So do you like? Do you get them to talk to you while no, they're doing? Do nothing. It? Okay. Just sit there and zone out. It's equivalent to six hours sleep. So people feel amazing. Yeah. And they just sit there and do nothing. I say to people, imagine a house. The roof and the walls in the house are your conscious mind, the part of your brain that says what you want to wear, what you want to do. You make conscious decisions about. The subconscious part of your brain is the foundation of the house, and that's the part of your brain that keeps you breathing, your heart pumping, all the parts that do things, but you don't consciously think about it, really, but you're still thinking about it. That's the part I'm talking to. Right. So while you're in a trance state, that's the part that's listening to me. So I just tell it to do things differently. It does. Done. Yep. So you know what the person's issues are, yeah. so you know what suggestions that you want Minimally. to make to them. So you would yeah. come to me and you'd say, for example... I want to stop drinking alcohol. I don't need to know that you drink four gin bean cans or whatever. You just say, I want to stop drinking alcohol. That is enough. Or I can't get to sleep. Or I don't know. My child can't go to the toilet. Or I have a fear of dogs. Or whatever it is. That's all I need. I don't need, you know, on this day this happened and this is why this happened. I don't need any of that. Yeah. You just need the overall picture. That's exactly right. Which is so lovely for people because there's no trauma involved. You don't have to go over anything. You just give me the bare minimum. And that's enough. And people come back to you with feedback, do they? Saying, oh, my God, I'm not scared of that anymore. Usually they come from one session, fix it, and then they write to me and say, I can't believe you did that. Like, you just talked at me. And I was like, 
that's weird. Mm. I heard everything or I didn't hear anything or I was like, well, my conscious mind wandered the whole time, perfectly normal. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, it actually worked. I can't believe that worked. Yeah. Yeah. So do, do people sometimes forget what... Can they actually... They can hear what you're saying to them. To pay but, attention. They don't have to. But sometimes they can't. But does that mean that what you're saying still goes into that subconscious, subconscious mind? mind? yeah. Wow. So I learned that the hard way because with children, they won't sit and relax. So adults will sit and relax. I put them in a really comfy chair because they'll fall off it. They go... <laughs> no, they do it. I learned that the hard way too. <laughs> children won't sit down. So I have to you know, get them to do Lego or Jager. I'd steal their nail polish and paint their nails while I'm doing it because they just won't sit. Yep. So they don't get a relaxation, but they still can absorb what I'm saying. Okay. Can you do like the kooky stuff? Can you make somebody cluck like a chicken and do all I that? I talk sort about of... ducks and chickens, so I warn people so they don't think I've lost my mind. But I can, but I wouldn't. Because you, you have can. to be ethically in agreement with what you're doing. So wow. Anytime you've seen that stage stuff, they're completely in agreement with what they're doing or they couldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what I always think. I think, you know, I... I people that are sort of self-conscious and that sort of thing get up on stage and do that sort of stuff. I think, is it just somebody that the... The hypnotist has paid no, off no, to do no. it. So when I was doing my last practitioner level, because I went over and did, you do it in Sydney and Melbourne, the one I did, and I did it like five years in a row. The last year you do stage stuff. So they, when you do a group, you can only hypnotise about 5%. So, you know, they had about 120, for about five people, when he scratched his nose, got up. I was one of the people. I was really suggestible by then. So I'm up on stage. I'm doing everything he asked. Couldn't remember the number four. Speaking French. I don't speak French. All this stuff. Then he said to the whole line of us, everyone in the audience is naked. Everyone beside me is like, oh my goodness, look at that, look at that. I saw nothing. I like, said, I think I'm unhypnotised. He said, no, you're ethically opposed. <laughs> right. Ripped off. So yeah. I saw nothing. I was like, nothing at all. So yeah. my brain was like, no, I'm sorry, that's not appropriate. You can't see that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So no, they lie when they say, I never would have done that. Yeah, you would have. Yeah, right. So you, even though you 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 are in a hypnotized state in that that's and we're getting off track but even though if you're <laughs> if you're hypnotized and somebody's saying cluck like a chicken that sort of thing you know what you're doing yeah. like you, you yeah, yeah, you're yeah, still yeah. aware yeah. but you just can't stop yourself. Yeah. One girl had to scream hallelujah every time he did something she'd go hallelujah. <laughs> and I was like and she'd catch herself doing that she'd be so embarrassed. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Well I will get you to do that. Like I said it, the, the way that you do it probably wouldn't be good radio because you'd be just talking. No and that's right. Yeah, Everyone would fall asleep. People wouldn't know what no, I was no, doing. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could walk out of the room yeah, and you no, could just yeah. talk into the microphone <laughs> but I will yeah. get you to do that to me. I'll yeah. report back on a further <laughs> podcast whether this works or not but I'm sure it will. Um, what would you say is the most rewarding part about your job? The most rewarding part would be when you can help someone change their life so they're not suffering so much. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Because I say to people, you don't have to live like that. And they look at you like, huh? You know, this is having living for so long. You're like, you don't have to. Yeah. And it's so easy. Or not. It's easier for me because I've done it for like 20 years, but small behavioural changes or this or that and the whole world can be different. It's so lovely. Yeah. Yeah. What's the hardest part of your role? Hardest part would be managing the wait list, to be honest. Yeah. Because I haven't taken a new referral since August, September. Wow. That's a good thing, though, for business. it is, but it's not because you try not to do it. And I keep saying to people, I'm not going to take a new until February, March. And I'm like... I don't like that. And I say to them, you know, here's some, I'm throwing them to other people. Please go there. Please go there. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay. And sometimes they don't want to. Sometimes they can't. And it just doesn't feel right. Ideally, it would be nice to see everyone, but I also need to sleep and 
yeah. my family and <laughs> you got your own life yeah, to worry about right. as well um what are um, some of the strategies that you use when somebody comes to you for the for the first time obviously they've got to get comfortable and you've yeah. got to build a little bit of rapport with, with them what um what's your sort of go-to with that or is there no no method involved it's no more by i'm feeling? just really awkwardly authentic yep so i just charge out they often try and bust through a door that's locked because i forget they lock it sometimes i do sometimes i don't mm. And you know you go through your consent, you're contracting, and then we just launch straight into it. And I say to them, if you're not, if you don't like this, especially if they've got a GP mental health care plan, you can take that to anyone. Don't listen to what the doctor said. That's a referral for anyone. Like you're not banned. Like try to make them as comfortable as possible. Yeah. Because it's really hard. You've got to be really okay with who you're going to just expose yourself to. Mm. I, I found again with with working with the the young people that I used to work with, sometimes it took a while. You had to earn that trust from them before <laughs> they would open up. But imagine yeah, in your yeah, um, like, but in your profession, I suppose they're coming to you um, to talk and, and open up. So you've got probably not more pressure, but you probably don't have as much time. To, yeah, to break that. Down. It's interesting. Young people. I've had some young people that will sit with their back to me, no word of a lie, for like six sessions, won't even look at me, and I keep thinking, why are they turning up? And then eventually they'll turn around, and they'll start to tell me why. I've had adults that have done the same. They'll, you know, tell me about their neighbour or. Issues with, you know, the fridges that work in really superficial things. And you think, is that really why you're here? Eventually it turns out there's a massive story going on. They just had to suss you out, you know, yeah. that's okay. And sometimes they need to know that you're going to you're gonna keep showing up and that you, that's you right. care about them. Yeah. yeah. I remember I learned a really, really good lesson with a young fella up in, in Launceston. Of, um, the police were called to his house because he'd had a... It was a very volatile family and he'd ended up taking a knife out to the to the family and um, I think it was a social worker or someone had called me because I'd been doing a little bit of work with this young fella but I didn't have a really good rapport with him Um, but I rocked up and he was just sort of sitting out in the front yard just sitting on his own Um, and I could tell that he was still very very hostile and I remember I just sat there with him he had to go to school that day and for whatever reason they decided that it was going to be a good idea for him to to go to school and why don't I try and see if I could get him to go to school so as soon as I rocked up he was sitting there and obviously you know the morning that he'd had I knew there wasn't any point you know going into the social stuff with him so I just sat there with him I didn't speak and I remember I just you know just sort of sat there and then after about two hours um and I know you said about swearing but I'll I'll swear because it's my (laughs) podcast he goes well fuck it then let's go yeah and and then talked the yeah. whole way in the car to school. Yeah. So he he either thought this bloke's not going to piss That's off. That's right. He's going to stay here. <laughs> yeah. Or or yeah. you read the room really well. Yeah. yeah. But I thought, well, if I just go in and just start, you know, going all counsellor on him, yeah. he's probably just going to you know yeah. job me, or he's just going to run off. But I just think he needed to know that I wasn't going anywhere yeah. for a start. So. Um, what advice would you give other people? And, and I was thinking about this this morning. I added this one to, to the list later on. But coming into the holiday season and Christmas, for a lot of people, it is a really, really yeah. tough time, you know, with people that they've lost during the year or, or lost around that time. And, again, I know talking talking to the young people that I used to work with, um, Chris, they hated Christmas because yeah. it just showed them everything that they don't have. Yeah. What sort of advice would you give people around their self-care around this time of year? Do what they need. There's so much pressure to do what others want you to do. Like that whole saying, you're setting yourself on fire to keep others warm. Don't do it. Like I said, I've already started talking to all my clients about what are you doing for Christmas and what do you want to do? And all of them say, I want to be on my own. I want to set a place for my deceased husband or my father to be. I want to have a meal 
I'd look at that placemat and cry and not have anyone else around me telling me I shouldn't feel this or I shouldn't feel that. Or tell your family that's what you want to do and you're okay with that. Yeah. So do what you want to do. Try and put yourself first for a change. Yeah. Yeah. Because Christmas can be a big strain on people. Even people that have, you know, families that that are fantastic. Some people, especially on Christmas Day, can be quite stressful. Yeah. Yeah. So I often tell people if they have tricky families to work out how to manage time, manage that. So do they know at the 20-minute mark that such and such has a bit too much to drink or things start to get a bit offensive at an hour and 50 and then they need to make an excuse to go or do they need to drive so they can leave, like be really conscious of the boundaries they need around that. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. What's the biggest challenge that you've been through and how did you overcome it? Biggest challenge? It's kind of like all different things in my life. It'd be like the bullying in high school. When Tommy's accident and all the stuff going around then, then Shaz died, that really messed with my sense of mortality. Having children, that changes who you are. I was exhausted for five years. I had two under three, which I chose for a reason, but yep. I don't think I could spell my name for five years. Wow. You know? <laughs> Drained. Yeah. Yep. Oh, private practice. Being a social worker privately in a predominantly psychology-dominated industry is pretty challenging. Yep. In what way? So my registration body doesn't really know much about how to do this. And they don't really... I think there's only like three of us in the state at this level. And so so you don't really fit with your standard social workers that go and do community NGO stuff, you know, really support work and counselling and not that clinical level that falls under Medicare and you don't fit with psychology, which is just gets more and more elite as the time goes on. So you're kind of like a black sheep to everything. So yep. that's pretty challenging. Yep. Mm. Okay. Yep. Um, that's pretty much all I've got for you, mate. That was pretty pretty painless. That was very painless. How's your voice? How's your throat? actually doing all right. Doing all right? Yeah. We've just warmed it up, haven't that's we? That's right. I can do jazz now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can go. On to, well, you can go. You can go, take <laughs> no, us out no, on no, a no. tune That'd if you want. That'd be a good yeah, uh, outro sure. to it. Um, but yeah, I just obviously want to want to thank you for your time, and I know that um, you know people that do work in this industry. You know, there's a lot of people that look up to you, and I know certainly you know when I was working in the industry, you know, you were a certain person that I always thought I'd love to sit down and have a chat to Mel about that sort of thing. Like you've got a really really good reputation, and that's mainly because of the results that you're getting. So that speaks for itself. So you know, keep doing what you're doing. Um, it's it's not by accident. I know that um, I think you were nominated for Australian year. Social yeah. Worker of the Year, yeah, and you finished top four I out know. of 800 so people. Exciting. Yeah. So exciting. That's not by accident, though. That was, well, kind of, I thought I was the only horse in the race till they said there was over 800, and I thought, oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, no, yeah. you did awesome. Like I say, you are the LeBron James of the industry. So <laughs> thanks very much for, for coming in, mate. Thanks and for having me. That's all right, my pleasure. And keep doing what you're doing, and... Have a great Christmas, you and the family. Thanks, mate. A huge thanks to Mel for coming in. As I said, you could probably hear in her voice Mel was struggling a bit. It's easy to see why Mel's so successful at what she does because she's got this beautiful aura about her and you just instantly feel safe and comfortable in her presence. As I said, there were some great insights there into what she sees as the issues in society and her work in general. And thanks for those great tips, Mel, for the holiday period. And it was great to learn about the story behind this fantastic human being. I'm sure people will take plenty out of it. If I don't speak to you beforehand, have a fantastic Christmas. If Christmas is not your go, make sure that you have a great break. It's actually a good time to catch up on a lot of Talk Hard podcasts you missed out on just quietly. Take care of yourselves, and as Mel says, make sure you're not setting yourself on fire to keep others warm.
anyone out there having their own struggles who wants to have a chat to someone, you can call Lifeline on 131114, Men's Line Australia on 1300 789978, or you can call Beyond Blue on 1300 224636.